you have to have a certain level of experience and a certain level of fitness. So if the more experienced you are as a runner, swimmer, rider, and the better your fitness level, you will have more cards to play. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. We've got an absolutely packed episode today off the back of two brilliant guests. We had two of the best thinkers in the world of sports science, triathlon, cycling and running training in Dr. Stephen Siler and Joe Freer the last two weeks. We absolutely love them. But in the meantime, so much has happened in the world of sports. Today, we're going to talk about one of the greatest cyclists of all time has announced his retirements as well as some really breakout performances from young Australian runners. Plenty of things in the world of sports to touch on as well as today's topic, which is how to dominate your local race no matter what your ability, which is a really exciting topic because a lot of racing comes down to execution and many things outside of your actual physical ability, which is why it's so exciting to realize that you can do a lot better even if you're not the strongest athlete. But before we get into that, Dad, welcome back to another episode. Let's start with our normal gratitudes. Yeah, thanks, George. Looking forward to today's episode and I suppose it's almost a bit of a come down, isn't it, after we've had two of the the world's leading um, experts in their fields as a scientist and as a coach. Um, Dr. Stephen Siler, as a scientist, has um, he's also um, got great knowledge for, in terms of programming, but uh, his, his expertise as a scientist is second to none. And uh, Joe Friel as a triathlete, he's the guru, I suppose. And um, really, uh, I'm, I'm excited for today because there's a whole lot of other stuff that we haven't been able to talk about um, whilst we've got those two great interviews that have just gone. So um, what's caught my uh, what's my gratitude? Um, it's a really easy one. Um, I'm super excited because um, as as a cyclic and cycling keen um um, viewer, uh, we've always cherished the spring classics and we've talked about it many times and, and you know, you and I have just recently entered uh, Grand Fondos, which is the Paris-Roubaix and the Tour of Flanders um, yesterday and that means that there's only eight weeks to go to uh, those two events, which uh, we've got the opportunity and I'm grateful for this because this is the first time since COVID back in 2019, I think, is the last time we went. Uh, as a group and we're going to take another group of 11 uh, like-minded cyclists to go and see um, the pros live at uh, Roubaix and Flanders and we also get to race those events the day before so in eight weeks time we are so super pumped to to be able to take the take the guys across um, and show them you know the the value and the the beautiful roads of of Belgium and Flanders and and Roubaix and experience those cobbles and yeah so I'm, I'm really I'm really grateful that we we still get that opportunity again I thought we wouldn't never have that opportunity again I didn't know what was going to happen actually um, but to uh, to take a group across and sh- and show them and let them experience uh, training on those roads for the for the week in between um, we get there on the Wednesday the, the first. Uh, Grand Fondos on the Saturday Tour of Flanders and then the Tour of Flanders the pros races on the Sunday so we get to ride the Quaramont the Paderberg and the Koppenberg two or three days before um, our first hit out so the boys have a real good uh, lead into what those 
bloody hills are like because they're brutal and they're steep and and if if it's wet you know it could be anything so um so it is really exciting and i'm really grateful to have that opportunity and then we have a training week where we go and ride some more uh, epic um climbs that uh, we don't get to do in uh, in the tour of flanders such as the the moor of gerardsbergen um, which is a a classic one and we, we're going to have a little uh, a little pb effort up there to see who can who can uh be the fastest up there and it, it is there are some egos on this trip it, so it is going to be interesting to see um, what, what the Strava file shows because as you know starting 10 or 15 meters back and trying to catch people will get you if you get there on top equal with someone else you will get the, the KOM don't give away the tactics Dad. <laughs> anyway so it, it, it is interesting because we are talking about that uh, how to dominate your local race and this is something that we'll be having lots of fun <laughs> fun in uh, whilst we're doing that uh, training week um, and just having some fun uh, on those unbelievably beautiful Belgium roads and uh, you know regardless of the weather it will be it will be fun um, uh, experiencing it with a group a group of mates that's great I know why it's your gratitude because we've been doing a lot of organizing just very recently trying to get all the last um, things done for the trip Uh, we've been thinking about it a lot more so it's definitely top of mind and so much so that last night when I was going to bed I only just remembered this then but um, I started thinking about Flanders and thinking about Roubaix and I started to think about entering the famous Arenberg Forest and both times going through there are the scariest moments I've ever had on the bike. And as I was lying in bed, I was—I thought I was falling asleep. And then next thing I knew, I was wide awake because a little bit of terror thinking about entering that forest again. And as fun as it is, I, I kind of was thinking to myself, do I really want to do that again? Is that—is <laughs> the fun that much worth it? And then I was thinking about just what it must feel like for the pros entering that. And I was trying to think, it was just such a blur last time, or both, or last few times, sorry. It's just... I can't even remember entering the forest. The whole thing just happened so quickly, but um, I started to get a little bit of anxiety just thinking about that roll in to you, to you hit the shadows, you hit the wet cobblestones. It's yeah, it certainly kept me up a little bit last night. Yeah, and look, we we come from the right, whereas the pros come straight down. Um, so they they've got Flying, a fair yeah. bit of speed. Oh, up. Good, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, um, yeah, and they're really doing 40, 50 k's an hour, and the guys on the front. Mm. Um, I remember uh, just uh, flying because they've got to run up, whereas we come from the right and we hit the cobbles at really low speed, uh, which is kind of good because <laughs> you don't want to hit the cobbles too fast, especially, and it's always wet. The cobbles in the forest are always wet compared to the other cobbles. So it's it's one of those things that, you know, I, I remember the last time we were in, my front wheel uh, buckled, broke two spokes and and you know lucky to not hit the deck so uh you know we've done it three four times before and had no issues and then the last time i did it i had really real big problems so anything can happen yeah every time i've been through it someone's crashed next to me so i hope not to continue that streak and stay on the bike myself um my gratitudes uh i had a gratitude which i will mention but before that we were just thinking about our last two guests i am really grateful that we got those episodes out because both episodes had severe recording difficulties we ended up losing a bit of video function the audio was mostly good 90 percent of it there were some choppy sections but uh, for a little bit there we thought we'd lost both of those interviews and we thought that well on one hand it's great that we got to have the conversation you and i because we learned so much but it was so disappointing to think that potentially our audience might not hear it and so very grateful that um, the files ended up we ended up being able to get the backup files and we could release them even if they weren't the highest quality we would like uh, very grateful to be able to get those out but my original gratitude for today was uh, i am going to a concert tonight that I've been excited for for months seeing this artist 
um, that these are some of the hottest tickets in Melbourne to this gig. Uh, it's a very niche kind of uh, gig, but um, this artist has blown up over the last six months. And when the tickets were released, he um, announced a small venue and everyone was quite confused why because he was starting to really blow up. Um, and he put a post out saying there was no, no other venues available. Um, and so these tickets, you could sell them um, secondhand for hundreds, if not $1,000. Um, that's how much people want to see this person. I've been given some very big offers, but I want to see this guy so bad. Uh, I go to a lot of gigs and concerts, but I've never been this excited for a gig. So I just absolutely cannot wait for tonight. That's a great gratitude, Jordan. And uh, for those who don't know, um, over the journey, Jordan's been to a lot of festivals. So we're always calling the, the festival guru here. And... Um, I'm always worried that every time you go to a festival or a gig, you end up sick the next the next week. So you have a big race coming up on Saturday, the Melbourne to Warney, and um, I'm just putting it out there live on the podcast. You better not end up sick after this gig. <laughs> Especially in an enclosed, tight area. That's right. Um, but it's all about balance, Dad. That's, what, that's the message we want yep. to promote. Oh, no, I want you out there having fun. Don't you worry about that. But uh, I don't know. The timing could not be worse, I reckon. <laughs> I did think about that before mentioning it on the podcast. Um, <laughs> but that's the gratitude for today. So moving on to what has caught our attention, there are a few key things that have happened. Um, but the first one we want to mention is the retirement of one of our favorite cyclists, one of the most enjoyable cyclists to watch over the last decade or so, and that is Peter Sagan. And I just want to run through some stats of Peter Sagan's career um, and just to paint the picture of how good a cyclist he really was. Over his tenure, he has 121 professional cycling wins, 289 podiums. That's a combined total of over 400 um, first, second, or third places. Um, He has won 12.6% of races he has entered, which is just absolutely astonishing. He's won seven Tour de France green jersey titles. That's seven. He's won 18 grand tour stages, including 12 Tour de France stages. Um, He's won Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix, as well as a bunch of other classics. Um, I think it's the, one of the most outrageous stats I saw was he's come top 10 in 46 or 48% of races he's entered. Uh, world champion three times, uh, just an absolutely phenomenal all-round athlete. And uh, he will go down as one of the greatest all-round athletes. Um, just hats off to him. What a phenomenal rider. What a very enjoyable character and rider and what a career it's been. I've got to say it's a great what's caught my attention because I have been a Peter Sagan fan ever since he, he started racing his attitude is what i really like he he will do anything to make sure that he gets the best opportunity and it's ironic we're going to talk about uh, how to dominate um racing and he's just the epitome of that he has dominated most races that he's entered and to have a statistic that you'd finished in the top 10 and 50% of the events you're in and look I did see a stat where he had come second almost equal to the amount of times that he'd won Um, and so you know not only is he a chance every time he races to win but he's on the podium Um, if he doesn't win he's either second or third Um, and how many times did you say he'd won in his pro career 121 121 so he'd come second equal amount of times Um, and that just shows you how much of the time he is involved in the outcome of the race and and he has dominated uh, cycling at that level 
and and it's not just in one one genre. He's he's winning the the green jersey at the Tour de France. He's winning stage races, uh, one day races at the classics. Um, he's world champion, which is a one off you know stage stage race really. Um, like he's just he's just an all rounder, and and his willingness to put himself out there and 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 not not win events is what I loved about his style of racing. Um, I will never forget in one of those tour stages uh, in the Tour de France when I think it was um, Chris Froome, him, and and two domestiques f- for both teams in a crosswind, they just attacked the Tour de France. And we just don't see that happening. And that was one of the best stages I can ever remember. I mean, there's been a lot of great stages over the journey, but boy, was that a, was that about taking your opportunities um, by the scruff of the neck? And and I can't remember the outcome. I don't have a memory like Matt Keenan who can just rattle off. But I think they stayed away. Um, yeah, yeah, and he won the stage. Actually. Yes, and um, and uh, Chris yeah. Froome ended up getting time on his. Um, on yep. the other GC contenders, um, so yep. both there was a win-win for both of them, and uh, yep. the the two uh, riders from their teams just turned themselves inside out on that stage to help those two guys get the outcome they needed, and that's a that's an example of the things that he's willing to do, and you know that could have blown up in his face, and he could have got nothing out of that and lost time, but but I just love the way he races. He's just willing to risk everything to get an outcome. Uh, that's a positive outcome. So that's what I'm most excited about and his career and his journey. And, and it's going to be a sad day to see a guy like that leave the peloton. We have got a good, some good replacements in, um, you know, Remco Evenepoel. I think he's a very similar rider, probably not as good a sprinter as, as Sagan is. But Sagan reminds me of Wout van Aert because he can climb, he can time trial and he can win classics and he can win sprints at, you know, he won Champs-Elysees. Champs- Champs lose a um, stage win um, uh, in the Tour de France. So, you know, there are guys who are probably going to be filling his shoes, but boy, he was a one-off. Yeah, this is our this is our tribute to him, and he is the epitome of one of the biggest messages you promote on this podcast, and that is you've got to be willing to risk it and be willing to give it a crack to get a good result. And the more you just hide in the bunch, the more you just don't give it a crack, the less chance you have of um, it's it's that that cliche quote, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And no one remembers the fact that he, he came second or third 290 times. You know, everyone just remembers him for every single win. He would remember those those ones where he, he might have stuffed those up. You know, he, he gave it a crack and came second or third. He stuffed up his sprint. He, he didn't make the break, you know, or he stuffed up a move late in the race. Um, or all those times he might have really gone for it and finished outside the top 10. Yeah, because he just continuously had that attitude, he was finished with such a decorated career. And George, well, that's, next, that's but, probably one of the things we should point out is the reason he won so many times is because he came second and third so many times. He learnt lessons from those losses and then turned them into victories. And and if, if, if you've got that many near misses and you're doing a lot of things right, it's just getting that that thing that you got wrong right and then that turns into a victory and everybody out there needs to remember that you know that you're going to learn more from making mistakes in and and having a go and getting it wrong because their lessons you learn oh, I'm not going to do that next time I'm not going to start my sprint too early I'm not going to attack at the wrong part, part of the, the I'm not going to lead people out I'm going to make better decisions and be a smarter rider and that's probably what our topic is anyway uh, today so we should move on 
Yeah, well, there's a few more things that have caught our attention that we really wanted to touch on. And one of them is a big coaching tip that you've just seen a lot of recently, and, and that is uh, core selection in training. And this is just a really big coaching thing you want to mention because it comes up with a lot of our athletes. Yeah, look, there's so many things about this core selection. And, um, you know, if if you're wanting to be specific in your um, in your training sessions that are directly relatable to what the specific requirements are of your race, then the course selection is really important. But it's also important to get the actual session done correctly. So there's two things there. There's there's getting specific uh, course selections that replicate what's going to happen on race day. And there's also, and we can talk about that in the in the, uh, the actual topic, I think, but also the, the selection of the, the, the terrain or the course that you're using if you're training outdoors. Um, so so that's why probably the indoor trainer has got has got a lot of positives about it because it eliminates those issues where you've got a course that's not really suitable outdoors. For example, if you're doing a VO2 set, and you know I could use any of the 60-30s, 40-20s or 30-15 repeated reps that you're doing three sets of, if you've selected a course outdoors that A, has a traffic light in the middle of it, has a roundabout or has a downhill or has a tailwind, it's near impossible to push the power at 120 to 140%, which is what VO2 uh, 40 seconds on or 30 seconds on or, or 60 seconds on is or even two minutes. If you're going downhill or you get in the middle of a, of a traffic light or a roundabout, you have to drop the power or stop the power or can't push the power because of the downhill or the tailwind, then you're not going to get to 120 or 140% power effort because of the course. Which means you're not, you're not going to get you're not going to get the training benefit. That's right. The training benefit's gone. And and also, you know, if you've done six out of 10 efforts and then all of a sudden you come to a traffic light, that main set of those 10 efforts, and you might do three sets of those 10 efforts, you've already had an interruption, which gives you recovery. And once you've recovered, your, your lactate levels are low, your heart rate's dropped, and you've actually lost the value of the VO2 set. So, so course selection is crucial. And if you end up doing that when we're trying to stimulate the cardiovascular system and not so much the strength effort, it's a, it's a high uh, cadence session. And if you find yourself going up a steep hill, it now turns into, and you can't ride higher than 70 RPM, you're actually not getting the value of the cardiovascular session from that particular effort. So there's so many nuances that can be detrimental to the outcome of the session if you don't select an appropriate course for the session you're doing. And I've just picked VO2 there. You could also use this on your, say you're doing sweet spot or sub-threshold or, or race-ready their terms that we use in our training program, where you're trying to replicate um, a 70.3, three by 30 minute effort at 80 to 90%. And if you all of a sudden find yourself going downhill for five minutes, there's no way you can ride at 80 or 90%. And if you find yourself doing, um, you know, one one section of a course where it's it's got too much uphill, then all of a sudden it goes for five minutes downhill and then it goes uphill again for for 15 minutes and you're not you're not getting the same replication of what's going to happen in your race so you want to look at what your race is the course uh, gradient or or course profile of your actual race and try and replicate that um, in your training course selection try to find that and living in the city is not easy to do that so 
So what's caught my attention about that is you need to be willing to go out of your comfort zone. And I've just used bike there for an example. If you live and you're a triathlete and you live in the city and there's and there's no hill near where you live. Say you live in, for example, Melbourne, you live in St Kilda and there's no hill outside your front door for 15K. You need to get in the car and and f- drive to wherever that hill is. Um, and and that'll, that'll make that cork selection where the hills are what you're trying to find worthwhile. But if you just keep doing those those undulating endurance runs on a flat course, you're, you're still getting the endurance factor, but you're not getting the undulating factor. So there's two factors to that to that undulating endurance run, and that's hills, strength, and, and the endurance component. So yes, you're ticking off one, but you're missing out on the valuable. So therefore, the outcome is being compromised again. So course selection for a runner, um, you could talk about um, – uh, cyclists, and you can talk about swimmers as well as individual sports. If you're trying to um, prepare for an Ironman that's going to be in a lake and, and you've only swam in ocean where it's salty, in a lake you've got no salt water. So therefore, you're not going to have the same buoyancy. So I would be seeking out a, a, a swim venue that has only uh, fresh water in it so that I'm not getting um, that that lack of specificity in course selection. So so that's kind of, I hope that makes sense what I'm trying to say here. It's really important that you think about, um, you know, having to, to go out of your comfort zone to get the value from the session uh, outcomes that you're trying to achieve. And, and that can be a pain in the neck, having to get in your car and drive, you know, a lot of people, I've talked about this on, on our private coaching um, calls with people where I've said to them, I'm willing to drive 50 minutes to go to a riding course that's going to be close to what I want to replicate, you know, uh, in my session. And that's a big effort and a lot of time. So I'm getting up at 4.30 to get to a a venue at quarter to six to start that ride. Um, So I'm getting up an hour and a half earlier just to make sure I'm getting there in, you know, early so that the traffic's less and, and get to the start of that course where I know that I've got less chances of, uh, of traffic lights being pushed for pedestrians, et cetera, et cetera. So there's so many nuances there. Uh, I just want to briefly touch on that in what's caught your attention. Yeah, down to the minute detail, it's it's really important to get that specificity correct. Um, I did want to, I just did want to tell this story. I just found this hilarious. Um, this thing that happened, and if you're a runner, you'll you'll understand this. And uh, this is a warning out there to any runners that are completing uh, interval sessions. And uh, if you are completing an interval session, you will probably do um, the same strategy where you do your warm up in your standard trainers, um, do your warm up drills, and then it's very common for runners to then change into their faster shoes for their intervals. This doesn't always happen, but it is quite common. And when you're out at a park or doing your interval somewhere, um, if you can, you might leave your shoes in your car. But if not, uh, if you're out somewhere where your car's not accessible uh, to the intervals you're doing, often I'll leave my shoes behind a sign or in a bush or something next to the path. And never in my entire life have I had anything stolen before, which is a big trust in society. Um, and I have probably left my shoes out in maybe two public places, which are too trusting. But uh, earlier this year, um, I came back, I, was, I went out for my interval, three minutes out, and then had the rest up there, then three minutes back. And halfway through my session, I came back and my shoes were gone. Um, and there was a, a person near me um, and he was acting a little bit crazy. Um, and no judgment on on what's going on in his life, but 
I knew, we looked at each other and I knew that he had my shoes and I think he knew that I knew he had his shoes and he was almost looking at me like, what are you going to do about it? And I just thought, well, I'm leaving this. He's, my trainers are gone, which is very disappointing, but um, but I can go get another pair, you know. Um, but I, I just thought that has never happened to me in my life. And then I spoke to another runner last week and they said, you would not believe what happened to me this week. I went and did my interval sessions and this person did it out in the country on a very quiet back road. They said they saw a minimum few cars for the entire session. They were doing the same sort of efforts out and back and they came back and, and found that their shoes were gone. And so, uh, unfortunately for all runners, it seems like shoe stealing is becoming a little bit more common. And I just found uh, when when she told me that, I just laughed out loud. I thought I'd, that's never happened to me either in my life. And now I've heard two accounts very recently of this happening. So, I guess a warning out there for all runners, if you're, if you're changing shoes and especially with the new um, carbon fiber um, shoe um, options. Expensive uh, losses. It is, yeah, it is, it is a warning to just, um, look, we don't want to distrust society. It's happened once in, in 30 years, but uh, at the same time, it, I just found it pretty funny that that's it's happened twice now. And uh, yeah, for any runners out there, maybe just think twice about where you're leaving them. Uh, one more thing we wanted to mention uh, before we move on to the main topic is um, an Aussie young 16-year-old kid last week just broke uh, the Australian 1,500-meter record and was 0.9 seconds off breaking the under-18 world record. And that world record in under-18s is held by none other than um, the greatest 1,500-meter runner at the moment in Jakob Ingebrigtsen. Uh, and so this 16-year-old Australian has ran 340.8 or something, and the under-18 world record is 339.9. So that is blistering time for the, for the 1,500 as a 16-year-old. Uh, but that is so exciting. He did a local certified uh, Vic Milers meet. Um, it was very exciting to see. There was a lot of talk about it. But that basically makes him one of the fastest 16-year-old kids in the world at the moment. And if he continues the same path as Ingebrigtsen, he's he's going a good way. Um, he comes from the, the Telford training group who have produced some great performances over the last few years, rivaling some of the, the top um, performances from some of our best athletic clubs in Australia. So that was just super exciting to see and I really wanted to mention that. Yeah, it's a great point, Jordan. And uh, one of the things that I'm, you know, I should be putting my gratitude is the Milers Club is just such a phenomenal, um, uh, fast-growing um uh, what it, what would we call it? It's a, an event. Um, so for those who don't know what it is in in, a, in Melbourne in particular, um, they have uh, the Milers Club, or it used to be called PB Meets, I think originally. Um, and and what what it means is you can go on any given night to a venue and enter an eight hundred or a fifteen hundred or a mile or whatever the event is that they've got on for that night, and it's just one or two events for the night, and they might have. Uh, 800s and they'll have divisions for male and female down from A grade, B grade, C grade, all the way through to whoever wants to enter. And you put in your PB time and they'll sit you, slot you in to the race that's suitable. To, so if you're a 2 minute 30, 800 meter runner, they'll put you in a, in a heat that is all 2 minute 30 runners. If you're a 159 runner, they'll put you in a heat that's all 158 to 2 minute runners, et cetera, et cetera. So it gives you an opportunity just to run against other runners who had got the same goal, which is to do a PB on that night. And you're all trying to help each other basically run fast. So it's not really a tactical race. It's really, oh, there is tactic in it, obviously, and execution. Um, but everybody in that race is trying to do a PB, which is such a great concept. And and I think it, it's on once a month, is it, George? Yeah, once a month they run it. And yeah. during summer. Over summer. Yep. Yeah. And, and now they're getting those uh, those 
they're packed, those events. You know, it's just growing in, and people are coming from all over country Victoria to run in there. And now we're getting results where, you know, the example you just gave was here's a 16-year-old kid who has an opportunity to run in a race and go for a PB and far out. He nearly broke the world record. Hmm. Uh, it's unreal. But yeah, that's enough for what's caught our attention. Just so many exciting things happening in sport that we love to chat about. But let's get into today's topic, which is how to dominate your local race, no matter what your ability. And any race at local level is really about execution and who has the best plan. And there is obviously ability involved, but we want to show you how you can get better results and especially those around you that might have higher ability. And this is so true in any sport, including triathlon, which is such about individual execution, but specifically in cycling as well, where or, or a running race where uh, with cycling, it's so much about tactics and the strongest rider basically doesn't win most of the time. Um, so we don't want to exclude any runners or triathletes here um, because if yeah, we want to talk about tactics in any running races, park runs, 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons or marathons, tries, and then also get cycling specific. Um but where do you want to start, Dad, with this? Where do you where do you want to um, lead people off? Well, our, our topic is really how to dominate. Um, so there's two things I want to say. Uh, you have to have a certain level of experience and a certain level of fitness. So if the more experienced you are as a runner, swimmer, rider, and the better your fitness level, you will have more cards to play. So, so we're talking about people who are, you know, it doesn't matter if we, if we select a, a crit race, for example, um, where it's graded. So you could be in D grade in your local club and you've got A level of fitness and an A level of experience. And those two things were going to really determine the outcome of the event on that, on that day. And if I take you for an example, you fronted up for your first two crit races in the last month um, in your cycling career and you you have basically zero experience in crit racing and you have a great level of fitness. So, so we've got someone who's got poor tactics from experience. You've got, you've got the information in your mind but you've nev- never actually had to implement it in a race situation. So you know what to do but you've never had to practice that in real life. But you've got really good fitness level. Um, I'm in that same race as you, and I'm giving an example. I've got thousands of crit races under my belt as experience. And compared to your fitness level, I'm probably 50% at your where you are in, in, in fitness level as a 64-year-old compared to a 30-year-old. So, so I'm coming into it with completely different um, tactics for that event compared to what you you have. So this is an example where we're trying to explain to people that it's just not about being the, the fastest or strongest. Um, I can still be with you in that race, and I was with you in that race, until it really got a fitness point of the race, um, where I wasn't capable of getting in the break with you because my fitness let me down. I knew the break was forming, but I had no ability to respond to that level of fitness. I I was willing to do it, but but I knew that I just couldn't because I wasn't strong enough. Um, but I could see the move happening and that was the time to go. I knew that was going to be the winning move with the break forming. Um, and so, so me getting myself to a position where I'm protecting myself, I'm positioning myself in the race to never be in the wind, I'm just trying to save my one and only possible move to get in the break. Um, but when it comes to that, 
time where the break forms, the race is on its you know on its most intense period, and that's where breaks will normally f- form. And if you are not in the right position or don't see it coming, you will miss the break. And if, and thirdly, if you don't have the ability, you'll miss the break. So there's three things happening there. Um, you know, protecting yourself so you're ready for it, um, understanding when it happens, and then having the ability to, to, to make the move. So, so I suppose that's where I want to start um, and to make sure that people understand that it's not always about the, the strongest will win because in, in bike racing, that should play out, but nine times out of ten, it actually doesn't. Um, but there are lots of examples of, of, you know, from elite down to club racing, where eventually the strongest person should actually be in the best position to dictate the outcome of the event. And, you know, you found yourself, you know, making decisions because of lack of experience in that in that particular criterion that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago in the break and feeling quite good um, and making moves that you weren't sure about, but you had a crack anyway. And, you know, you ended up breaking away from the break and being solo for a period near the near the final uh, of the actual event and you know knowing when the bell is going to ring and of course you know it is an hour plus plus a lap but they ring the bell at 55 minutes that throws confusion into the into the the tactics of people who are waiting for the bell at, you know another lap or two later so lots of things happen and decisions get made and, and as you you'll explain probably yourself it's split decisions that you have to make on the fly um, that will determine how the outcome of the race um, evolves. And and you decided not to have a go solo when you sat up and let the, the bunch catch you when, in fact, the bell rang. You could have, had you known that the bell was going to be ringing then, had a go and tried to stay out. You may have got gobbled up, but you were still going to do better than what happened to you, which was get gobbled up and no, come nowhere in the sprint. So... You know, the Jens Voigt theory is I've got no chance of winning the sprint because I'm not a sprinter. I've got 1% chance of winning in a break. I'm going to take take the 1% chance over the 0% chance. And, and you know, in hindsight, it's easy for us to, to evaluate your post-race analysis and say you should have stayed out there, but you didn't know that that was going to be the bell lap. But that's just an example of how how, you know, you've got great fitness in that bunch, in the breakaway bunch, probably equal to anybody, but you got no outcome because it ended up being a, uh, a bunch sprint with the breakaway bunch. Yeah, you know, based on our principle that we spoke about with Peter Sagan, um, it's kind of disappointing to, to not do what we say and, and um, not have that crack, you know. We'd say, we'd say Peter Sagan or Jens Voigt would be disappointed because when you're out there, that's the time when you just, no matter what, the odds are, if you're in that position, you've just got to, um, in hindsight, I, I realised that you've just got to have that crack and um, being out there already and, and putting in an effort um, to get away and then easing up is just such a small chance of, of getting a good result after that because, you know, legs are already done from, from being out there. So, um, that was my specific example. But I guess it, it leads to a broader rule of, um, this is, and you spoke to me about this off air, but basically in any race, you want you want athletes to, you're asking them to be as mentally exhausted from decision-making and concentration as physically exhausted. And that is how you really do well in a race because um, the concentration levels are so high, you, you're always thinking and you can make the best decisions and, and be really smart about how you, about, how you go about things. Yeah, and look, the number one thing you've, and, and I've really learned this in the last year or two, I think, um, as I've... Um, as my my 
my fitness level compared to the people I'm racing against is progressively diminishing. I've had to use more tactics and positioning is one of those um, to, to enable me to stay more as competitive as I want to be. So I'm saying to people who have got unbelievably good fitness, act as if you have zero fitness. And that's kind of where I'm coming from now. My fitness is not as good as yours, so I have to play some other cards, which is positioning myself and conserving. The two key things that I can do, I have control over, is where I position myself and how much I'm conserving my energies for when it counts. And if I'm an athlete who's got so much fitness levels, right, you know, my fitness is, is equal to anybody else in the race, I can be blasé about mistakes I make because I can recover enough to go again. Whereas if, if I'm in my position where I, if I make one mistake, I'm going to get dropped. So that's what I'm trying to say. Act as if you have no fitness and, and position yourself so you're not burning matches and conserve every single watt that you can until it matters when the break is going to form or you're wanting to attack the race. So that's what I want to get across to people. And I see people with unbelievable physical fitness attributes with shocking positioning and shocking conservation of their, of, you know, the matches that we have are only two or three. Um, and you need to, you need to be vigilant about, I'm not going to waste my efforts on things that are, that are a waste of time. Um, and, and how do you know that? Well, you don't really, but if you know the field that you're racing against, you, you should do your homework from maybe if, if it's your first race, you've got no, no chance, but if you've done a season of racing or you've done four or five in your local club races, find out in your D grade race, who won last week or who was second and third and get, identify them next week. When you start the race, are they there this next week? And then watch what they're doing. Um, was it a was it a just a sit on sprint finish, or was there lots of breaks going up the road? Learn from what you did the previous week. Understand who you're racing against by by seeing who won the previous week. And these are all things that you can take note. And that's what preparation is. Uh, understanding who the people. And I said to you, you know, when your first race, these are the people you should keep your eye on because they regularly get in the break and they regularly win. You should get yourself positioned behind those three or four people. I told you those people and I pointed them out to you before the race started. So you had a clear tactic of, well, these guys are generally winning or generally in the break and I need to, whatever they do, I need to be ready for the moves that they're going to make. So they're examples of, of things you can do to help yourself be more prepared for when it's important to do something in your race. So you keep using the word position properly. What does that mean? Where should you be positioning yourself in a, in a race? Yeah. So if if I if, let's just keep using the crit example, and and I and it's different for road racing, um, but some of the tactics are similar in road racing to crit racing, and and I want to differentiate if I if you can remind me, um, but but in a crit race, generally it's a, a short circuit that might be you know, 1K round. Uh, and if it's longer than that, it's really called a kermesse, which is the difference between crit, uh, kermesse and road racing is just the distance or, or the circuit size is different. A road race can be, you know, a 30-lap uh, loop or out and back. Uh, kermesse can be the same. A crit race is generally really short, short, punchy circuit where um, you're out of corners, 
tact skill cornering and out of out of corners is a real tactic that you need to be good at. Whereas a Kermese, and we've got a, a circuit at Sandown, which is probably three k round, and that's more a Kermese circuit uh, where it's a, a lap that's not got a lot of tight corners. It's got one tight corner, but the rest of it's quite quite easy um, for skill uh, levels. There is there is a downhill sharp left hander that you have to have some good. Uh, cornering uh, uh, ability and then ability to get out of your seat and, and bridge gaps. So so the, the actual specifics of, of a crit race are, are really uh, all about positioning yourself not in the first three or four um, and being a sitting duck. Why? Because the big hitters are sitting somewhere between 8th and 20th and, and, they're, and they're also sitting – uh, on the opposite side to which the, the wind is coming. So you'll never see the guys who win the race sitting in the wind on the wrong side of the bunch. Um, so if the bunch is going up a straight bit of road and the wind is coming from the right, all the good guys will be on the left-hand side with as many riders between them and the wind as possible. So that's positioning for the wind. Positioning for uh, where you are in the field. So if there's a field of 40, you don't want to be in the last five, 10, um, because if it's a, it, because if there are accelerations, it's like a whip effect at the back. You know, the guys at the front have accelerated hard uh, because they've chased down a break, and the guys at the back are forever trying to accelerate to catch up when everybody else has already accelerated, and you've got five second lag, and so you could be having a situation where there's a five meter gap, and you're actually in your own wind because the the lag has taken so long to, to filter down through the field that there's gaps forming and you could be exposed to the wind yourself and you might have to do 700 watts whereas the guy who's in eighth or tenth position he just spins his legs up to, to close the gap at four or five hundred watts so there's already a difference of power being pushed by being in the wrong position if you're also sitting first second third you are probably going to be in more wind than the guy sitting seventh eighth ninth because you will end up being on the front at some point. My tactic over the years has been I never want to be on the front unless I'm in a breakaway and I have to be on the front to roll turns with my with my breakaway teammates or five metres before the finish, that's when I want to be on the front, when I'm going to, about to win the race. So the only other time is if I want to break away myself solo. So there's there's four reasons why you would be on the front. Um, but if you're if you've got a bunch of forty or fifty people behind you, and I see one of you guys, my Trivello guys on the front, I'll be asking, "What the hell are you doing?" Um, but there could be a valid reason. You could be trying if the brake's gone up the road and the bunch is not trying to to bridge the gap. Then sure, get something out of the crit race, start rolling turns. So be on the front. So there would be reasons why. But if you're trying to win the race, you don't want to be in that first, second, third position because you can't see what's coming from behind. So you could be riding and rolling turns on the front with 40 people behind you and the, the pressure's on and people are really struggling and you've got a climb or a headwind. All of a sudden, this is the time when the, the big hitters will say, right, the bunch is struggling. This is the time to attack the bunch. And so therefore, you can't see that coming unless you've got eyes in the back of your head or someone yells out, guys are attacking down the right-hand side of the road. And on the course that I'm talking about, we have open road um, in this. It's a closed circuit, so we're not out on the, the road where you can't be on the other side of the road. 
Um, but in a in a road race, you you only have half the road. You know that white line you can't cross; otherwise, you'll be disqualified. So I'm talking about a crit where it's a closed road, and no, normally the people who are going to attack they attack on the other side of the road where there's a gap that you have to bridge from one side of the road to the other, and there's wind in in between the two the two attacking um, bunches. So so they're examples of not seeing what's coming and having to respond and push big power to to bridge gaps whereas if you're sitting behind those big hitters you're just following the wheel and you're getting a free ride and you did that beautifully you know, one of the guys who did attack um in a, in the bunch you were right on his wheel i looked across he was attacking at you know at two or three kilometers an hour faster than what the bunch was riding and you were right on the wheel and that was beautifully done and that's an example of you taking the information follow that guy whenever he attacks go with him and you were ready for it and and that that's what i'm trying to say here and the guys who are sitting first second third fourth they had to get out of their seat and push five or six hundred watts burn one match to bridge across to you who were sitting at 300 watts on the wheel of some guy who's attacking does that make sense what i'm saying about positioning it's, it does. There's just so many nuances to it. And I guess if you're thinking about the different examples you gave, you know, you said the big hitters are sitting between 8th and 20th. How much does that differ between the type of race crit or, or up to road race? Um, does it really matter whether you're, you're 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th compared to 15th, 16th, 17th? How does that yep. come into it? Great, great question. And look, if we're doing a hot dog circuit where you're just going straight down uh, maybe 400 metres and you do a complete 180-degree turn and then you come back up, 400 meters and do a complete 180 degree turn positioning in that race if you're down the back you're going to get dropped and i've watched um we have the bay crit series here down at geelong and it's that hot dog circuit is exactly that circuit and the guys who are sitting say there might be 60 in that field the guys who are coming into the corner and the guys have already come out of the corner who are at the front they've already accelerated these guys are decelerating when they come into the corner and there's about a 10 second lag and one by one all those guys at the back get dropped off at the elite level they're all equally elite as the guys at the front they're all the same fitness level there's no difference it's just their positioning is causing them to get dropped because of that lag effect and the whipping around the corner so in a crit hot dog circuit you need to be in the first 10 to 15 so that you don't have that ripple lag effect. And in a bigger crit circuit where you don't have that 180-degree turn accelerate flat out out of the corner, it's not such a bad um, uh, position to be 10th or 20th in a, in a crit circuit that's bigger. But the hot dog circuit, you can't afford to be that far back. So each circuit and the road race – you know, the the effect is so much different because you're, you're really probably doing 30K in a row out in one direction. So there's always opportunities to move. But the one thing I will say is when you come to a hill or a, or a crosswind section, the further back you are in a road race, then the worse you're going to find that position for your, for your overall best outcome. So if you're coming to a hill, um, and you know that your weakness is 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 the hill climb, or you know your weak uh, your strength is the hill climb. You'd be less less worried. You could be in at the base of the hill. You could be anywhere from six to tenth. But if I know that I'm weak on that hill and I've got a possibility of being dropped, I'm going to be second or third wheel. So that by the time I get to the say it's a ten minute climb, 
by the time we get to the top of the hill, the 50 people in the ride, I could be 50th by the time we get to the top of the hill because I'm weak at the climb, start third, end up 50th. If I start 50th, I'm going to end up 150 metres off the back by the time we get to the top of the hill. If I start third, I'm still in contact with a bunch by the time I get to the top of the hill. So that's an example in a road race where positioning, you need to change position when you know there's a hill coming. The second thing is if you know the road is going straight, the wind's coming from the right and you're sitting nicely on the left-hand side of the bunch getting protected from the wind in a road race or a crit or a kermis, it doesn't matter, and all of a sudden you turn right, then the wind is still coming from that right direction. You turn right, now you're on the wrong side of the bunch in the wind and it could be a crosswind now instead of a cross headwind it's now full-on crosswind you're on the right hand side of the bunch you are in the wind so you are going to be spat out within the next two or three minutes unless you change position and that will be single file you've seen it echeloning in the tour de france up the road four or five echelons the guys who are sitting on the back of the, the first echelon who are single file and not in the echelon but a single file, they are world tour riders, elite, have got the same ability of the guys in the, in the echelon, but they're getting dropped. Why? Because they're in the wind. And so they're examples of the fitness level is the same, but your positioning is going to determine whether you're going to stay with the bunch or get dropped. So if you know that in one kilometer, we're going to turn right and it's going to be a, cross, a crosswind, what should you be doing? You should be moving from that right-hand side to the middle of the bunch and just before you turn right, you should be in the gutter on the right-hand side of the, of the road so that when you turn the corner, you've still got people between you and the wind. So that takes a lot of balls to keep moving position from the far right to the middle to the far uh, far left, sorry, to the middle to the far right of the group before a turn comes. And that's also knowing the course and knowing where the wind's coming from. So there's a whole lot of things that you have to be thinking about, which brings me back to your original sentence. You th need to be so exhausted from the mental strain that you've put yourself under as much as you are from the physical strain. If you're not thinking about where's the next hill, where's the next turn, where's the wind coming from, how far back am I? You should be running those things over your head <clears throat> and every 30 or 40 seconds. Am I in 10th, 15th position? Look up to see where the front guys are. Holy crap, I'm now in 30th position because people have come from the outside to the front and that's pushed me back. So you need to keep thinking, where am I? And keep if you're not moving forward, as a saying, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. Um, because people move from the outside to get better position and force the people who are in the middle of the bunch back. And that's just normal selection. So you've got to all the time be continually moving yourself through the field to be anywhere from that fifth or maybe probably eighth to 20th wheel. You're going to be tested by this, for those who don't know. <clears throat> There's the Melbourne to Warner. We have talked about it. The Melbourne to Warner Ball, it's a 270-kilometer one-day road race, and it's got the elite riders of Australia in it. Um, the NRS riders, the National Road Series riders, and other riders can enter as well, like yourself, who aren't in the NRS. So you're going to be really tested with your positioning. Um, you know, you know that you're reasonably fit to be able to keep up with this level of uh, bike riding, but if you don't position yourself so that you're 
protected and saving your energy, saving your power and moving positions and thinking about how how you're pedaling, um, where are you in the in the pack? Are you 80th? Because there's probably going to be 120 riders in this pack, in this peloton. Am I 80th and is it going to turn right in a minute and, I, and is it going to be single file and I'm going to be just dropped like a, a sack of potatoes if I'm not sitting properly? This is going to be enormously taxing and stressful because you know that I'm going to be drumming into you the mental side of where am I in terms of my position. And so your whole job is to keep moving um, and understand what's going to happen in five minutes, where the next hill is. And so you need to really look at the course profile in detail and understand and even write it on your head stem on your handlebars, you know, where is the first hill? Um, Check out the wind that's going to be on that race day. We know that it's going to be a southwesterly, which is pretty much a cross headwind. And then in the middle of the day, it's going to turn direct west, which will be total crosswind for the majority of the ride. So, but that course, uh, that ride course changes direction probably 50 times to the right, to the left, uphill, downhill, right turn, left turn. So, you know, you understand what I'm talking about position you know, one minute you're in a good position, then the course direction changes and now you're in a bad position. So forever you're going to have to keep thinking about what to do about that. So I'm giving the, the listeners a real understanding of what my discussion with the team will be about their positioning for this upcoming race. And, you know, I always use the term, if, if, if I see you in the wrong position, you don't do anything about it. When we finish this event... Don't come near me with, I don't know what happened, you know, because I'll be whacking you over the back with a cricket bat um, saying, what were you thinking sitting there? You know, the only thing, the only outcome that could possibly happen is that you're going to get dropped. And we see it in world tour riders getting dropped when it's single file across wind. So, so these are things that, that, will, that will definitely decide the outcome of the event. So of, of course you have to be fit and prepared. Of course, you have to be that that level of um, standard. You can be as fit and prepared as you like, but if you position yourself poorly throughout this race, you'll only have one outcome, and that is eventually being dropped. That brings us to the final point we want to finish on, and the key words you use a lot lot throughout that explanation was conserving and saving, and uh, that's kind of how you can universally dominate any race, not just a crit race or a road race, but a try or a run. The athlete that's the most patient, uh, you talk about this and just keep saving energy means the, the closer you get to the finish, the more cards you have to play and the more the more moves you can make because you've been the patient one and you've saved energy. If you if you use the analogy of a bucket of water and and you've got that bucket of water full of water right to the top, if you early on in the race use three quarters of that water, then the, for the rest of the race, you've only got a quarter left. And, and if we use that as energy or or power or whatever you want, heart rate, if you're forever keeping keeping that bucket of water as close to the top as possible for when it counts and only use only use that water when you need to and and measure your, your efforts from if it's a, a half Ironman or a, or a 260-kilometer Melbourne to Warrnambool, or a 20-minute FTP, you need to measure your water consumption. I'm not talking about fueling here. I'm using the analogy of water, the bucket full of water. If you get to the end of that 
270 kilometre Melbourne to Warrnambool and you have the only the bottom of that bucket of water left and you, you haven't, you know, you've, you've done that slowly and progressively the whole way through the ride and when you've needed to push the power and stay with the bunch, you've, you've used more. But if you've measured that effort the whole way through and conserved when you need to, you will get to the finish as strong. And, and that's the difference between the, the pro riders at, at, the, at the world tour level. They're all very fit. We did not see Simon Clark or Michael Matthews near the front at the Australian Road Nationals titles. Um, or or Luke Plapp, the eventual winner. So that was first, second, and third. And they measured their efforts from start to finish. They got all their other riders to to do all the work for them, and they just hid in the bunch. And when it counted on the last lap, that's when they all of a sudden came to light. And that's that's conserving at the at the highest level. Um, and as a triathlete, you want to do the same thing. You know, you don't want to start the swim sm- smashing yourself and p- putting your heart rate through the ringer. You don't want to get on the bike and riding 50 watts higher than you're going to do for the average for the whole bike ride. You don't want to get off and run the first K or first 5K as your PB. You want to measure your effort and conserve so that you get to the end having, you know, used the same amount of energy throughout the event and have spikes where it's important and cycling that's a lot but in triathlon it's not in road running or 5k or marathon running there's no spikes it's a measured even expenditure but cycling has different different uh, requirements and that's what we've spent the most of time on but this does conserving does really benefit any sport and you know you've you've you know, we talk about uh, so many people just making sure they've got enough for when it counts. And, you know, we haven't talked about Simon Clark, but he is unbelievable at this. Um, you know, a guy who didn't even have a contract two years ago comes out and wins a stage at the Tour de France. He's always in the top 10 in any classics, comes out and comes third at the, the Road Nationals, comes out and comes second at the Cadell Evans event. You know, he is the king of of just positioning, conserving, and using his energy. He's the ultimate smart tactician. He's got the power and the and the physical ability, but he is so much smarter than anybody else um, that, you know, he's, he's got the, the tactics of a Sargon, but probably doesn't have the same ability as a Sargon, um, the all-rounder. But boy, he's made the most of his his strengths, and, and he's an example of what we're talking about. People hearing this want to know that um, if they do these tactics of conserving properly and positioning well, that they can actually get a good result, even if they're not the strongest athlete. Yeah, we've got we've got thousands of examples of people who who are not the strongest, and yet they've really listened to the tactics. And so, so you you conserving, you positioning yourself, you're saving so much of your energy levels for when it counts. And the person who's got you know, so much fitness to burn, they're not worried about that. And and they're the people who are going to possibly not get the best outcome. So the people who are conserving and positioning themselves so they're not in the wind, not burning matches, uh, not getting gaps, not being single file in a crosswind and, and, you know, being exposed and possibly getting dropped. If you do that well, you give yourself more chance than the person who just continually burns all of their energy levels for when the key key parts of the race come. And so, you know, if I'm in a race with you and I've got 50% of the energy level you have, 50% of the ability you have physically, 
But I have not spent a match, whereas in, in first 20K out of a 60K race, I have not even been in the wind. My average power is 180 and my normalized is 180. And I look at your profile in the first 20K, you've you've done, you know, 20K worth of 190 to 250 watts. When it comes to the, the key component of the key moment of the race, you could be huffing and puffing because you've just done an effort. And here I am sneakily sitting in a perfect position, conserving my energy and go with the move. And because you're on your limit, even though you're fitter than me, but you've been caught out because you've burnt too many matches, that's an example of what we're talking about where, you know, just because you're the fittest, but if you're not the smartest and you haven't conserved and you haven't positioned yourself well, you could still get left out of the, of the break, you know, miss, miss the key part or lose the race uh, because you've just used your, your energy levels at the wrong time. And the person who's clever um, and conserves and positions themselves beautifully and has the same physical ability as you will beat you every time. It's the same thing in time trials. It's the same things in triathlons. The, the patient athlete will get to that last quarter of the race and have as much energy as possible, have the maximum amount that they've you know, measured their effort in the last the last quarter of a half marathon or a marathon. Um, and we always speak about this. You'll feel like you're flying through the field and you perform really well. And you say to all our athletes over and over again, if you don't do that, you can completely capitulate in that last quarter. Even though you've ran, ran potentially ran or ridden or raced so well over the, the course of a triathlon up to that point, if you've used too many Vickies, if you've spent too much energy, you could lose undo all that hard work disastrously compared to just being conservative from the start, measuring your effort the entire time, staying really patient. Um, you might not gain that much time earlier on, but you'll gain so much in that last quarter, which we just see over and over again. The the final thing I want to say, the example, and it just happened on the weekend, and it's a and it's an extreme example because this race it was a it was a, a grand fondo. It was the Alpine Classic at Bright, and and we had guys doing two hundred k or two hundred fifty k, and there were some people doing seventy five k, hundred k. There was a whole lot of different distances, and we had two guys doing two hundred fifty k. And hats off to both of them who just performed brilliantly, and they executed exactly what we talked about: conserving and positioning. And the first climb is up Buffalo, then they do uh, Tawonga, one side, Tawonga, down to Mount Beauty, turn around, come back up Tawonga, the other side, down Tawonga, into Bright, then they head to Harrietville and do Hotham, and then turn around and come back down Hotham and ride all the way to Bright. So that's the 250K. It's got basically a Bright climb, a Hotham climb, Tawonga both sides. It's got four climbs. And obviously every ranging from twenty minutes, twenty minute climbs to, to an hour to, to two hours. Hour. Um, hmm. and so, you know, the tactics and the and the discussion was for both or for all our riders doing this event, um, and doesn't matter whether it's the Alpine Classic or it's a ten to twelve hour event. So, you know, when you get to Buffalo, you've got to ride the power that's going to be the same power as Hotham, as Tawonga, both sides. So so everybody else in the race is not doing that, so they're getting passed by pretty much the entire field. They all start together, and our guys are pretty much last because they're riding the same power. They're going to ride for all four hills pretty much. Um, and that's a bit of a hard thing to, to, to mentally cope with because everybody's passing you. Everybody's riding away from you, and you think, this is crazy. I can ride way harder. And you don't feel bad. You feel perfect. You're fresh. You're tapered. By the time they got to Hotham, they pretty much were passing everybody. And that was the exciting part. That's the bit you, that because they, they conserved and measured their effort from start to finish, and this is an extreme example, 
you know, they, they've gone from position 1,000 back to position 100 or 50 or wherever it is because they've actually measured their effort, enjoyed the thing. People who are just having a hell of a hard time on Hotham, you know, just cannot hardly push the pedals. And here's our guys tapping away at the same watts that they were on Buffalo. Um, so that's an example of, of you really using your bucket of water throughout the whole, the whole event and getting to the end, just running empty there. And so I think that's a good way to finish. Talk about dominating a race. They might not have won or come top 10 or even top 20, but the fact that they've passed 600 people or 800 people, you feel like you are dominating the race. And that is that is the best feeling. And that, that is a great way to finish. So as always, thanks for listening. It's been a great packed episode and we'll see you on the next one. 